You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Archaeology Podcast Network is sponsored by Codify, a California benefit corporation. Visit Codify at www.codifi.com. Welcome to the Anarchaeologist podcast, your host here, Tristan. Today I am talking to Kath Poucher, who is listed on her own Twitter bio as a heritage professional blogger. She works for a library down in some place in England, somewhere in the middle of nowhere, I presume, because England is just middle of nowhere, apart from London, that's got too many people in it. And uh, she's talking to me today about a little bit of everything, actually. Um, Kath is uh, a very prolific blogger. And she also likes writing about the history, the past, and heritage. So I thought we'd kind of start with that blog and just ask you, well, how did you start? Why did you start writing? What influenced your writing? I started writing um, because I was doing my master's at York and I was doing the cultural heritage management module. And for one of the essays, we had to use social media for a month, I think. I can't remember how long it was. And then write about how successful our use of social media was and I think I I everybody chose Facebook because that's what they were on but I, I had a Twitter account and I never used it I just so I thought well I'll try and use that and I actually tweeted it I think I used so I started doing that and then I decided to write about it was quite a fun project I actually quite enjoyed it so I decided to write about it somewhere and so I set up a blog and it all kind of snowballed from there to be honest <laughs> But why, why were you even doing a master's in cultural heritage management in the first place? I mean, are you one of these people? Now, I've met, there's, there's two types of archaeologists here, and two types of kind of past people. There are people who fell into it accidentally, somehow, along the way, and there's people who are like, from birth, they were new. Indiana Jones, that's me. Where do you fall? <laughs> my, my master's was actually buildings archaeology. I just took that module. But I actually wish my master's had been cultural heritage management, to be honest. I think that would have been... I prefer, I, yeah, I preferred that, to be honest. Um, but I, I was one of the from birth ones. Actually, no, not from birth. I, I ended up doing... It was in primary school. And in mm-hmm. primary school, we had to do, like, you know, those... What do you want to be when you grow up? It was one of those things. And I just wanted to be, I wanted to do history. And I remember my mum sort of going, you can't just do history. You can't just do history. That's not a job. You can't just do history. And then I was like, well, I want to do history. So you can't just do history. You have to do a job. So then eventually I kind of found, oh, there's a thing called archaeology. I'll do that. And then it kind of, it's, it, so it's from being about six. And by about eight, I'd planned my master's. <laughs> Wow. So, you know, I planned okay. it all well, quite you... early. I planned things in advance. So I attended. I, I had a, a, a very specific route from about 12 of what university I was going to and what I was going to do. It was very, very well planned out. <laughs> from 12? Yeah, yeah. I Jeez. planned it from about, yeah, when I got to secondary school. And, <laughs> um, yeah, when I got to secondary school, I'd kind of planned what my A-levels were going to be and then what university uh-huh. I was going to. So it was all planned mm. fairly early. And at no point did it ever swing out left or anything like that. Did did it follow the way you expected it to go? The degree did, yeah. The degree was yeah. what I expected. Um, that was that was fairly. I did. I went on some kind of. I went on excavations before before university, and I kind of got so any of the excitement of it being like Indiana Jones was kind of washed out of me before I got to uni. 
so I already knew and I also I did a level archaeology so I, I already knew that I wasn't going to be really rich and I already knew that I wasn't going to find I wasn't going to find gold or something I already kind of knew that so I wasn't expecting something mind-meltingly stunning from it but so I, yeah I had fairly realistic expectations but I kind of I didn't think I, I, I don't know what I thought I'd do and I've never wanted to dig so I don't really know what I thought I'd do to be honest that's why I can pluck the buildings because it wasn't digging <laughs> <laughs> well of course archaeology isn't always about digging either but yeah I, I know what you mean uh, it's just that's a stark contrast to myself where I kind of accidentally fell into chem uh, archaeology from chemistry and I knew I was an archaeologist when I was younger, but I never knew the word for it. Like, I uh, had the phase of, you know, ancient Egypt. Never never was interested in prehistory in Britain, though. Never interested in that. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what it is. And it still doesn't interest me to this day. But it seems to be quite a important thing for a lot of people. Are you interested by prehistory in Britain? I, I am. I am. <laughs> I feel like... I went to Anton Holland. I remember when I was at university in about first or second year. Um, I, 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 I wouldn't say I forced. It wasn't forced, but I convinced mum and dad to take me to Orkney for that year's summer holidays. My mum is very much a sun person. She so sun is required and a beach, preferably. And so, <laughs> you can already see where this is going. And so it didn't, yeah, I convinced them to do Orkney. And I did lots of, you know, I went to the, it was just as the excavations were starting then. I'm not going to mention the BB, I'm not going to mention it, but where those excavations were, they were just starting and all the things were coming out about it. And so I kind of didn't, I didn't get to go and talk to them. I just kind of peered over the side looking uh -huh. a little bit nosy. I think I think we should for our listeners who aren't so clued in on UK kind of, <laughs> oh, yeah. media, kind of interject slightly. Um, so basically, there was what uh, Kath is talking about is the there was a show uh, talking about the ritual history of prehistoric Britain, and basically the show stipulated that uh, Orkney was the capital of Britain before Britain was Britain's a thing. Britain's common which... culture, Britain's Neolithic common culture. You've got to get it right. Don't say it. Don't say it. Oh, it makes my insides turn. Jeez. The reason why common culture is such a prehistoric common culture is such a problem is because there's no real evidence for it. It's just an idea. But there is. They actually, said so on the show. Well, you know what? I actually, I, I actually would. I, I wanna, I wanna throw an idea that I have about that show and the reason why that show even exists. It's basically a show that exists because of the zeitgeist in which we now live, this idea of Britain, Brexit Britain, yes. basically, influenced that show, right? Yeah. In the sense that it, it basically allows um, a, a reasoning for any person to take on themselves. A, Britain has always had a common culture. It's always been by itself. And even in the prehistoric, even if it was isolated, it was, you know, we, this is, we, we became this great nation that we are today. And on the other side, it's, well, look, Britain has managed to, you know, make intercon interconnecting links with a common culture of Britain with the rest of the world and traded with Europe uh, in the past. Don't worry, it's not going to change anything. We're going to be fine. You know, it's this kind of reaching into the past to kind of d say that the future is already like told and made. You know, I, I think to me, without Brexit Britain, without Brexit occurring like it did, uh, I don't think the show would have... 
It's not that they deliberately did it like that, but because of the way in which things are going, the people who are making these shows are like, oh, that's the kind of top of my head. You know, it's kind of there on the tip of every tongue. And that's what's been made into that show. But that's just my, you know, pontification <laughs> here. Uh, what, do you, what do you think, Kat? I, do you think they just made it because that's what you do? I'm presuming shows take longer than kind of a few months to, to film and plan um, like that. So I don't, I don't know if it started like that. I just, I, I do think it's very uncanny that it was suddenly this big, amazing, Britain's always been Britain, Britain, yay, Britain. Um, I think that's, a, yeah, I find, yeah, I kind of agree with it. I think it's probably, it probably fell like that when they were doing the, so I'm sure you do, I'm, I'm sure it fell like that at the end. Um, yeah, post-production. Yeah. Like, I, yeah, right, guys, guys, we've got to sort this out. We've got to sort this out. This common culture, guys, common <laughs> culture. I bet you, I bet you there was like an archaeologist, like, you know, like advising there. Like, you know, I mean, you got lots of things that are the same, but I don't really think it's a, it might not be a common culture, common culture it's alliteration it'll work we'll take it no no i said it might not be well it might be and it might not be that's all good enough for me let's go you this know? show exists purely for neil oliver's hair so <laughs> you know what what was what was neil oliver saying recently he said something about scottish independence while being in yeah he was Arguing against Scottish independence while standing on in New Zealand, which is a small independent nation of five million. Just you know, somebody pointed out that hypocrisy recently. That was quite funny. I almost met him once. <laughs> <laughs> almost. I was uh, in Stirling. Actually, you didn't fangirl and, and like chase him down a street. No, because I'm actually not such a big fan of Neil Oliver. I'm sorry. <laughs> Don't act all shocked. I'm, uh, I, I, like, he's all right. Like, you know, he's nothing special. And... <laughs> Kat, are you still there? I'm, I'm here. Come, I'm, I'm here. It's okay. I'm here. It's okay. It's fine. <laughs> no, I mean, like, I uh, I was in Stirling and we were doing some... Uh, it was actually with the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists uh, Scottish group. We were doing laser scanning of King's Knot up in Stirling. It's like a raised garden. And apparently, Mr. Uh, Oliver was walking around the edge and he talked to a bunch of people. And then, of course, I heard this in hindsight, after the fact and everything. So I wasn't very fun. I had a similar thing uh, like that with, with Mick Aston. The great Mikasten. I was really? on. I was on an arc when my, my first ever dig when I was like 16, 17, and I was just kind of stuck there digging away. And I, I, I and this this guy kind of walked past, and I remember turning around, kind of going, "That guy looks like that guy of Time Team. That it looks like him." And everyone in the trench just turned around and stared at me, and I went, "It was." I was like, "Oh!" <laughs> <laughs> so I, I missed. Yeah, he probably just saw me saw my digging technique and moved really quickly. <laughs> <laughs> but what's funny is, like, I think it's so important that archaeology is properly demonstrated in the media. I mean, like, like we've just talked about literally two different shows. Yeah. And that's what actually the interface of archaeology and people mostly is. I mean, I mean, are there any TV shows that you would like to see made about history? Is there is there one like little thing that you're like, you know, I wish they had a TV show about X or Y? Or do you want to see Time Team back? I don't want to see what Time Team. I think this is another controversial thing. I don't think Time Team should come back. I remember when it was 
kind of decommissioned or when they got rid of and they had all the Twitter accounts, the save time team, save time team. And I never really, and I got, I did get kind of spammed with tweets and things about that. And no, I don't think time team should come back. I think it was brilliant for the nineties and the early noughties. And I think it was great. It didn't get me into archeology, span but it did. I did watch it. I think I've watched nearly every single one, nearly probably it's over the course of a few years. And it was great in its day, but I do think sometimes CV programs have their day. I don't, I think it ran its course and I, I don't think, no, I don't think we need time team back. Um, I think whatever we need, I don't know. Um, but I think, yeah, I don't think time team needs to come back. Um, I'd quite like the fact that either the best example of this was a show that was about the Iron Age, I think that Alice Roberts did. And I, 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 I'm, I'm not a prehistorian, so I don't know how, I don't know about the accuracy or non-accuracy of it very well. Um, there was not a lot of women in it. <laughs> I don't think women are, and just anybody who isn't a man, basically, isn't very well represented on TV history, archaeology shows. It's all about when you even look at the BBC iPlayer history column. If you just go into the history bit and scroll down, <laughs> keep scrolling down, most of it is about white men. And, and it would be quite nice to read to, to any, not just the BBC, but for some people to address that. I mean, that would be quite mm. nice. I mean, um, we've got, I mean, I've had a few Twitter conversations that basically argue we need our own uh, TV uh, production team. And, you know, it's always been a goal of the Archaeology Podcast Network to make non-standard uh, programming. The only problem is obviously, well, you know, I'm uh, well, I, I, I'm a guy. Uh, actually, Archaeology Podcast Network has a lot of women who produce shows. I don't know if you're familiar with our prehistory show. It's done by Kim Biddulph. We even have a woman in archaeology show now. I think about it, we're doing quite well. Uh, do you want to join? <laughs> we've got uh, we've got positions open, uh, uh, volunteer positions, and that's that's the biggest problem with archaeology. Is, yeah, we we can we can do anything we want. Oh, I can't pay you. I don't yeah. know if you've come across that kind of like the things you want to do. People want you to do them for free. Yeah, I mean, obviously. What, you, what you've said to me before we started um, doing recording was that you're not actually technically in an archaeology position at the moment. And is that by choice or is it not by choice? It's Even an archaeology... By choice. It's, 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 it was a definite choice. Um, I, I wrote a blog post about um, when I left what I would call archaeology slash heritage, um, when I left it to go to my current job. And... I'd been saving up the anger for about a year, at least a year. And so I wrote it. I wrote a, basically a divorce letter, a breakup letter to archaeology. Um, and one bit I remember thinking is that when, when I was going into archaeology or through uni, I did go in there knowing I wouldn't earn very much. And I went in there knowing I didn't go in thinking I would get like an amazing job straight away. I knew it wasn't like mm. that. And then obviously the recession helped. Um, but mm -hmm. I do remember the ethos you're told is that you have to to live to work and you're you're kind of groomed almost in archaeology to your whole reason for being and your whole life is about archaeology like not only do you have to work in archaeology you have to volunteer in archaeology then you have to do clubs and things outside of your work time and all your social life has to be archaeology you have to go and dig some things in the so your summer holidays and your breaks have to also be archaeology and when you're doing your recreation time you have to go to museums and do more archaeology and I felt, and every single time I was applying, because my first job, I was very lucky that it was actually a fairly decent 
starting salary. It was quite good. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. I realized that if I wanted to progress, I would have to take a pay cut. And I couldn't, I live in the South. <laughs> I can't afford a pay cut. If I was living in the North, then maybe I could, but I couldn't down here. And then there was the option of, well, you have to move somewhere and get a temporary contract. And I was like, well, that that's not fair because I've, I've kind of created a life here. I don't want to just move up my entire life and my friendship groups and, and move somewhere else. That's also not very fair. And I think... I think you should you should work to live and if you enjoy your job then that's great and you shouldn't just do a job because you hate it to get the money and that's that's not right either but you shouldn't live to work you should work to live and since leaving archaeology I have bought a house and I have a job that's not that poorly paid it's not brilliant I'm still starting out I'm still young so it's not I'm not earning billions but it, yeah I, it was a conscious choice to leave because until the profession is fixed I'm not going to waste mm. my time being unhappy in it but in saying that you still dabble you still see I dabble, yeah. <laughs> yeah and that's what i think is really amazing by archaeology is that people do dabble like it's like you can try and take the person out of archaeology but you can never actually take the archaeology out of the person because no matter how much they've said i'm not doing it i'm not doing it you kind of sit down and you say well you know so what 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 what, uh, what was it like on your first dig? Well, my first dig was like, I told you, I told you, you still had it in you. You had the stories, you had the stories, because that's what archaeologists are about. They tell stories. I mean, tell, let me know if there's ever an archaeologist out there who cannot tell a story. They all can, and it comes out during the pub, doesn't it? Like yes. you get the beers out, and suddenly they've got it, and then the quiet one in the room, and you're like, ah. They'll never say anything. And then they're like, two beers in. Right, so this happened and this happened. And you're just like, right, I knew it. I knew it. Archaeologists tell stories because the past is about stories. Although the stories themselves are always a bit odd, I find. And I think that's just because archaeologists in general are odd. Has Do you ever find that archaeologists on the whole are majority kind of a little bit odd? odd. I think archaeology is a clique. Um... I didn't notice this. I remember at university, um, some of the history students would do modules and they would come down to, because the archaeology department was was not on the campus, they would come down, trudge into the town and they always said it's really cliquey. <laughs> so I think, I don't know if it's about odd. I think, I, I, I don't, I think it's more a case of where it's a clique. Archaeology is a clique. And once you're in the clique, you don't, it, you're in it. So I, I think we're all just very... I think you have to be a certain person to tolerate it. <laughs> mm -hmm. But yeah, you know, you're completely right. Archaeology, everybody knows each other or they know somebody who knows someone. Yes. Um, it's so weird when you're like, oh, do you know this person? They're like, yeah, yeah, no, I know this person. I actually find that, well, my first job up here was with a very small, well, now growing uh, archaeological units based out of Fife and it just so happened I was speaking to someone they're like oh yeah no I know this person oh I know this person and then there are people I went to university with who knows this person who knows this person and then of course I know somebody else I all I one day um I was down in Dorset of all places in Dorchester and I had a chimichanga with David Connolly of Badger that was a weird day that was <laughs> yeah <laughs> Okay, look, it's a chimichanga, which is the first time I've ever had one, actually. I don't think he had one. What did he have? 
he definitely had a wrap of some form. We were, it was a, it was lunchtime, and I remember, <laughs> with I was walking out with David Connolly, and we were going to get some food because we hadn't brought any food. Was that a conference or something? But you see, this is the thing: you find these people, and everybody knows them, and suddenly you know them, and then yeah, you're having like fajitas with David Connolly. That's a weird one. Conferences are the weird melting point of archaeology. I remember at the CIFA, um, the CIFA, the um, Chartered mm-hmm. Institute for Archaeology conference, one of the conferences I was at, getting, I, I don't, I can't even remember where I was. I still don't know what pub I was in. I was in a pub of some description. And I'm, I'm not allowed to drink that much. I can't, I do drink, but I have to kind of limit it. And I'm certainly not allowed energy drinks. And I remember being brought, being kind of, somebody just plonked about God knows how many Jaeger bombs in front of me. And then I, I looked next to me and it was John Gator from Time Team. And he was, I've never had one of these. How, what do you do? <laughs> and I remember teaching John Gator from Time Team how to drink a Jaeger bomb. Um, and I do remember him kind of the immediate reaction face of, oh, <laughs> that will never, ever leave my brain. <laughs> yeah, I think he might have been in Glasgow. Yeah. Oh, geez. Actually, you know, funny enough, meeting people at conferences, we met last uh, April at uh, CIFA at the Equality and Diversity Group thing talk. (laughs) No, if I understand correctly, you're one of the committee members. You're still a committee member. Yes. Okay, so <laughs> what a wonderful segue. Tristan, you're really <laughs> professional at this. So I was actually wondering if you'd talk us through why, how did you even get involved with the Equality and Diversity Committee? So again, it was at another CIFA um, conference. Um, Paul Belford and Hilary Orange did a, a session about glass ceiling, so anybody will possibly remember it was a very it was a very good session it was in it was in a tiny room and I think people I don't know whether the organizers thought it would be kind of one of the fringe sessions and it was packed and there was people stood at the doors and the discussions got quite they were quite emotive they were quite emotional discussions and I went in there not I think people tend to think archaeology is very liberal very accepting and very and just very tolerant and you went in there thinking well archaeology is kind of actually one of the better ones why we do we need to almost break a glass ceiling I suppose in archaeology but then you got in there and then people started sharing examples and then you were like yeah that's happened to me and everybody was sharing and it got quite it got it yeah it was quite emotional there was lots of very really hideous examples of things that had happened and then in one of those sessions um in that conference Hannah Cobb um from Manchester um presented about the idea for a committee um that would champion equality basically um we didn't want it to be it's not kind of a fringe interest group because i don't think equality is is an interest group you kind of i think if you're a human being you should want it um but we 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 thought there isn't a group that's campaigning for equality in cifa and there should be and so that's where it came from so i just I, i literally cornered her and wouldn't let her leave until i'd kind of i i kind of forced my my number on her and my contact details on her and it it sprung from there so obviously like 
I think, well, the interest group thing, yeah, I mean, in CIFA, for the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists in the UK, there are set, all these different working groups that try and develop different ideas about certain things. I mean, there's the Diggers Forum, forum who deal with, I think, you know, people who work in the field in commercial archaeology. There's the graphics one, which is about illustration and stuff. And obviously, there's all these different groups, and uh, Equality and Diversity is one of the newer ones. So... I mean, how how what have you been able to actually do? Um, have you been organising stuff? As we have, it? I mean, it's been very busy. When you set up a new group, there's lots of like you need to. There's lots of things you need to do, and a lot of them are unfortunately very much behind the scenes that people won't they won't see. Um, so we have been getting things ready. We've got action plans, and we were also this year we're doing. We've decided because there's there's so much inequality that. There's just so much things to do. There's a huge list of things um, when you look at the, the the profession at the moment. So we're doing focus groups. So this year we're focusing on disability. And um, that doesn't mean we're excluding everything else. That's that's not how it works. But it does mean we're putting significant focus and we're setting up a, a group, a fringe group almost, on, like with us that will specifically work on that. And um, so that's what we're focusing on this year. We, we did the session that, that you came to that was, it was mainly an introduction to what do we, what do people want us to do and what can we do and what's the problems now? We had some great speakers there. Um, one of the things we've actually done that I can, that springs to mind that's been implemented is that um, the, the committee members, there was no maternity leave. So uh, Hannah obviously is on maternity leave at the moment and um, Jim is interim chair and there was no option for that so if you had to leave if you were pregnant then you weren't well, did you go off the committee did you have there was nothing like that so we and that wasn't just implemented with us all the committees have that now so there's there's um all the committees now have um maternity leave so if you're a chair or you're in the committee and you want to take a break from work then you should you should be able to take a break from from a committee as well and come back so Hannah will be back with us in the spring, summer. So we and all the committees have that. That's good. And I think I don't know whether all groups have this or it's just us, but we also have um, almost like a compassionate leave. Um, so if you're really busy or if you're having health problems or something, you, you don't have to be scrapped off the committee. Um, you can just have a period of leave and then come back. So we're trying to um, and we're trying to. We're just at the moment we're just it's a lot of behind the scenes work that we're doing trying to get things sorted we're having our agm in a in march our agm and we're also having a mental health workshop that everybody's not that's not just for obviously everybody can come to that so we're having a mental health workshop um alongside our agm so we're doing lots of things but it, most of it at the moment is behind the scenes that people don't see which is why the, the twitter account and things is and the, and the website are, are fairly important so people know we're still here <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, any listener to my show is um, well aware of what um, certain people, uh, certain barriers that people face in archaeology because of the wonderful Teresa O'Mahony, who I spoke to a couple of episodes ago. And actually, her episode is one of literally one of my favorite ones because of the very true to life stories that she has to share with people telling her about basically that. People were turned away without even consideration for certain things because the idea that, you know, you have to be a certain way to do archaeology, that there's, you know, there's nothing. If you don't look like the normal archaeologist, well, that's you. 
you know don't even think about it and actually she's um she's always advocating for um especially what she called enabled archaeologists you know people with uh, physical and other disabilities that you know are then enabled to do the work the same work as everybody else i mean i, I don't know if she's i was she one of the speakers if i remember correctly yes, she was yeah yeah and uh, i think it's really really good that there are people out there like that who are from a place of actual knowledge and experience being able to speak up about it and that's that's what's really nice about um diversity itself is that you have perspectives that are non-standard perspectives but they're really informed perspectives you know i don't think i could ever claim to know exactly what it's like to be refused for a job because i i don't i'm very fortunate i'm very privileged not to have any sort of um I, I don't there's no there's not many barriers that i face if any at all in my job and i've been very very lucky uh, nonetheless in what i'm able to do and so i'm really happy that there are people who are you know really pushing the boundaries of what um people think is acceptable and in doing that just allowing us as a society actually to learn more because i think this is the same thing reflected back in history as well because i mean if you look at history uh, itself it's you know as you said in the bbc history channel it's not only presented by you know old white men it's probably usually about you know old white yeah. men as well you know you got the kings you've got your war like documentaries i mean the thing is that you know what about the rest of history you know what about the history that doesn't get talked about. I mean, as you said earlier, your suggestion for media was very much a different kind of media. And I, I think that's definitely something that it ties into the whole, I, the, the political aspect of history. Now yeah. I've been called out for calling the past in itself inherently uh, political, but I think that the past is a, has a political value in society and people use it to do certain things yeah. i mean how how would you explain to somebody who doesn't believe the past is political or that archaeology has any political stuff no no that's that's you know all that data and stuff you know that's you know when we put it into theory it's just it's neutral it doesn't it doesn't have a side i mean i mean how do you convince somebody who might think that well, that's just the way it is, because that's what the show told me. You know, how, how do we engage with these people, do you think? I think the most the most recent example, and it is from yesterday, of politicians using the past for their own means is Brexit and World War One and World War II. They, they, they were comparing Brexit being like, well, I, I, I can't, what? Anyway, um, <laughs> that is, they are using the past for political means, people into the past is political because whether you want, no matter how neutral you try and be, nobody is ever neutral. So somebody can say, I'm not really into politics and they probably are into politics. They just don't know that they're into politics. If you have an opinion on how your money should be spent and if you have an opinion on anything in this country or your country where you live, then you're into politics, whether you realise it or not. And that means that if a historian or an archaeologist is into politics, they will automatically put their bias on the interpretation on the things that they're looking at. You will automatically do that. And it's, it's obvious when you read two different points of view. If you look at 
there's pe- I could I'm not I won't kind of name drop people, but there are certain historians have certain fairly famous male historians of the Tudor period who have very specific right wing views, <laughs> right wing male views of uh-huh. history. And they definitely put that interpretation on their history programs and in their books. And then if you look at a historian who I know who is female um, of the same period, her her interpretations of the same people on the same subject is completely different. Mm-hmm. And that is because mm-hmm. their politics are influencing their, their opinion and their interpretation. There was a great um, Twitter battle between, of course, the, the goddess, the wonderful Mary Beard, and some right wing, I don't even know who he is, not important. He funded Brexit, basically. Well, he funded UK, yeah. I think. Don't quote me on that, I'm not sure, but I know he had some... I, I think he, he's basically in that kind of right wing space yeah. of pro-Brexit, sovereignty, let's close down the borders. That's that's the important thing here. But he was he was trying to take on Mary Beard about the Roman Empire because his version of the Roman Empire kind of served the political narrative that he wanted. And, I mean, you know, people could say, well, you know, Mary Beard's version of the Roman Empire serves her political purpose as well. But there's a difference between actually distorting the facts and then trying to use that distorted facts to come to a political opinion and then, you know, using, you know, a historical basis to then use that as an analogy. I mean, do you, I mean, do you remember that? Uh, I followed it with interest. I remember... I think the argument in itself also caused controversy because some people were saying, well, you should never engage with the trolls because you're just adding fire to the trolls. And no, I don't, no, you shouldn't. But that one was just too funny to ignore. I think sometimes if you've got that much voice and Mary Beard is, she's super intelligent. She is a, an expert in her field and she also has a public platform. And she, I think you should use it in that case. Um, but it was just quite funny to watch, to be honest. Um, and, I know recently there's a Guardian article. I think it's in the Guardian, and they met recently for coffee, and they and yeah. So if you actually go on to if you you can Google it or you, or Twitter it, and there is a they met for coffee and they had the discussion in person. And if I remember correctly, they were actually quite they they talked quite politely by the by the by the sounds of the article. Um, but yeah, I remember that quite well, and they. Yeah, I, I, I did. I just I found it funny, to be quite honest. I thought it was quite funny. I think this is this is one of the things of the Internet age is this idea that, you know, online, you know, when people are basically anonymous, I mean, like I'm not anonymous online. You know, I put my name out there and nobody cares, you know, um, but. You know, in this age of anonymity, every argument is a heated, violent, like eruptive debate. Whereas, you know, oh, but in person, everybody's nice. But sometimes there is there's a limit to that. You know, I, I think there's there's a limit to how nice and polite one has to or should be about things. I mean, you know, there there's a stage at which you have to say, well, you know what, you, you're really just reaching around for nationalistic kind of, <laughs> you know, uh, nationalistic um, prerequisites to actually say, hey, Britain is better when it's, you know, isolated from everything else, despite Britain only being the superpower it is by reaching out. I mean, the thing is, Britain got 
to where it is today through imperial conquest of all these other nations because it has no resources of its own. I mean, these people are the same people who are arguing that Britain's conquest is its power, you know, is, is a positive thing, you know? And it really, it, it just really bothered me because um, ultimately that, that's really, that's the sad truth of what's coming back, you know, is this argument that Britain's conquest is is really uh, positive and I really think we need to drown that out. But, you know, if I drown it out, I'm just, you know, in a safe bubble, in a safe space camp. No, I'm just in a I safe space, right. bro. <laughs> I think you're right. I do, I, I have seen a lot of, an English, shall we say, a rise in the mention of imperialism. And if I see, I don't know if it has been mentioned yet, but if I see the word empire, I would probably scream. Um, the concept of, I don't know, are we, I mean, you're obviously, we, even us two now, we, we are talking about our own political opinions, but history, but you, you, history, you can interpret it to your own way, and you, you interpret history in your own in your own way, and that's clearly what the people, the national more nationalistic, more brevity people are doing. They're interpreting history to their own means. But when you think of the empire and, I mean, that was, I would even use the word great. I don't know what I'd call it, but we were, whatever it was, it was that way because of the use and abuse of power and people and slavery and basically doing horrible things to, and thing, doing horrible things to people because we thought we could. And, I think it's important that historians and archaeologists don't let that that side of that history drown out at the moment. I think it's important that we do keep saying, well, the empire wasn't that great, actually. I think it's important that we keep saying these things, because otherwise I don't... It was. It's just becoming more widely known about. I know archaeologists and historians have always kind of... Not always, but more recently, it's, it's been a... We have known about this, and it's bought, it's be, it's now being more widely known in the public eye as well. And it's important we don't let that go. That we we, we do educate people that empire wasn't great. It's not a great empire. It's it's. I always feel conflicting at last night of the proms because I, I love last. I shamelessly love last night of the proms, and I I adore it. And I sit there in my flat with alcohol and a flag, and I start and I sing along, and I sing in full opera voice, and it's hideous. Um, but I also feel very conflicted because the songs just make me cringe. Because mm. the songs. <laughs> I mean, think about uh, think about the. Did you watch the recent Apprentice? I don't watch the Apprentice. It's just a. Uh, it's just well, okay, fine. You don't watch the Apprentice. There was. <laughs> I, know, I don't. I won't, I don't know. No. I. I. I what I. What I mean by that is basically they were making a gin, and they called it the Colony Gin. And had an old world map on it. Oh God, really? And uh, they were surprised that people didn't like it because of the bad <laughs> connotations. Like these were people in the street, right? And they were saying, "What's wrong with it?" Well, I don't really like the name, and the colors a bit off. They like colored the gin. I don't know if you like gin, but apparently, coloring gin is not lights. And... Okay, I'm fairly new to gin. I only started liking gin in 2016, so I'm fairly new. I'm being educated by the right people, though. So it's, it's, it's fine. <laughs> but the idea that, it, you know, these people were like, oh, we're, these are marketers. These are people who are salespeople. Yeah. And yet when they bring out something like Colony Gin, they're like, why do people not like this? You know, there seems to be this out of touchness, you know, this. Yeah. This, 
you know, oh, people are just being too PC these days. But there are people who understand the... the, the there are, definitely. You know? And what's really interesting is, I actually want to, you know, sc scoot around to your recent article about Stonehenge, because I think it ties up a lot of what we've been talking about today. And obviously, for anybody... I, I mentioned this in my last show about, um, basically, Stonehenge, there's going to be a tunnel built you know, to ease the A303 or something. It's a road in England. It's not really important uh, what road it is because uh, all roads in England lead to London, right? Fairly busy roads. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been told. Um, but the, the, the thing is that this tunnel has been planned for how long? It's like 30 years? Oh, gosh, yeah, quite a while. I mean, it was planned, then it wasn't planned, then it was planned. Uh, I, I, I don't know the full history, but it, it, it's mm. not a new thing. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. And the thing is, I want to point out, uh, in, in obviously, you can go and read the blog on um, Kath's website, which is, I'll, I'll leave a link to the thing below. It's cdpheritage.co.uk. See, always clicking, always holding on to the last little bit of archaeology there. I knew it. Um, so basically, the gist of what I get is that you're arguing that the reasons why people are saying no and yes are the problem that people are arguing in about the wrong things so could you sum up a little bit about what you think is wrong with <laughs> what i'm arguing? saying in my rant <laughs> yeah basically you know because i i i get you know people obviously stonehenge is really old and really valuable because it's really old i mean it is a bit of a standard argument for any kind of history but what's your main problem with that I suppose you have to remember when I'm about to say what I'm about to say. I am coming at this from a historical archaeology point of view. I did prehistory for like a month <laughs> and then ditched it. I, 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 so I do not, I am not a prehistory person at all. So I look at archaeology definitely from a buildings archaeology or a prehistory mindset. And I found the Stonehenge arguments really interesting i don't know enough about prehistory to have an informed opinion on the tunnel at all i don't have an informed opinion so i wanted an opinion i wanted to be swayed one way or the other and i was actively i put out a tweet saying can somebody kind of explain stuff like can somebody tell me stuff and i just got bombarded with with it was they were very heated and if someone gets really heated at me without giving me actual information, I, I will switch off, and that's what happened. But I found observing it from a, a sociology point of view, observing the, the way people were talking about Stonehenge, very interesting. And it was a case of how do we value our heritage? How do we value Stonehenge? Now, do we value Stonehenge because it's old? Because um, that seemingly is what I'm getting. Because the road, people are saying they want to get rid of the road. The road is bad on the landscape get rid of the road off the landscape that's a very simplistic way of putting it i realize but is the road not kind of on the landscape too i mean is the road floating in the ether above above it is the road not in the landscape i don't understand how the road isn't part of the landscape now once you've changed it archaeology is destructive by nature once you did once you do something to a landscape it has changed and it just the, is the road not in the landscape have i missed something so why should we exclude over a thousand years of history and because the prehistory the prehistory bit is more important i'm not saying it isn't important all i'm saying is i think our our value of stonehenge is almost what we've put on it we've made it this cultural icon and we're trying to put it back and i'm quite interested in what we're putting it back to because 
do we have some prehistory people here now who are telling us exactly what Stonehenge was like? Do we know? So how can we put it back? Very interesting as well. I just find it was just, there's a lot of shouting about how it's really valuable and it seems to be valuable because it's old and I don't think that should be the be all and end all of something's value. I think the rest of the landscape is equally as important and we've already changed it. It's there, the road is there. Yeah, it's the question of where where, where does archaeology start? You know, like um, archaeology is was that is it archaeology forty seven minutes ago when we started this conversation? Is that archaeology? Yes, yeah. yes, it is. But is you know, <laughs> like people are like, well, well, no, it's not. It's not archaeology. I mean, the thing is, archaeology can be everything. And I, I mean, like, I, I want to take away. I, I want to, you know, I, I think. I've always wanted to hear who is the next Binford, who's the next Shanks and Tilly, what's the next paradigm shift? And I think it should be the shift of not archaeology's anthropology or is nothing. Archaeology's everything. It is nothing. You know, it's nothing without everything. You know, everything that we talk about and we do has some kind of concept of the past in it. This kind of concept of what came before and what will happen. And I think Stonehenge is this idea that it's some sort of anchor point. It's this kind of like, yeah, I know we have to destroy the rest of the UK through planning permission, but yeah, I, we're, we're keeping Stonehenge safe, so we're okay. We're good. We're keeping yeah. important bits okay. I mean, this, this is what we need to change. We need to say, you know that really, um, that you know, like that, that little kind of stone mound that nobody knows and everybody walks over every single day? Yeah, that's more important than Stonehenge because we don't know anything about it. And we will never know anything about it. And that's the void, the nebulous void of history. But we I always think as well, I know, I always think as well, do we, with the, the thing with Stonehenge as well is we're putting more value on what, on, on how it was and not how it's changed. So, I mean, I, I'm a buildings archaeologist, so the example I used in my in my blog was York Minster. York Minster has changed over the time. Over time. It, it's constantly changed. It, I mean, the recent East Window changes, for example, that, that they're all new. Um, it, it's, and that doesn't mean that York Minster as an entire building is less valuable because we've added something to it. it, it that's not it at all. Its value is not... That, that that bit is newer than that bit. Its value is in the building itself. But with Stonehenge, seemingly it's different. Um, we pick and choose what bits of that landscape we value because, well, why do we? In, in buildings archaeology, I certainly don't do that. I, I don't pick and choose what bits of a, of a I'm, I did churches, as you could probably tell from the York Minster example. I don't pick and choose what bit of a church is more valuable because that bit's older than that bit. That bit's medieval, but that bit's just a Victorian Gothic revival pew so that's less valuable it still tells the story of how the, the building was used well the road and the modern landscape the modern boundaries and things all those different changes they're still telling a story about how that landscape was used so does that mean they're less valuable i, mean, I think that, that's generally my point of the whole mm -hmm. ramble <laughs> i mean well i mean the question is then you know like uh, you know if you replace all bits of a ship is it the same ship you know bits by piece you know, you've replaced the sail and the hull. Is it the same ship if you've replaced every piece of wood, bit by bit? And the same can be said for, imagine the York Minster was changed bit by bit over the last several hundred years. I mean, it's not the same York Minster, but it's still York Minster, you know? It's, it's almost like <laughs> the essence hasn't changed, but the form has, you know? And that doesn't necessarily mean it's not what it used to be, but... I think I think this is now getting into the very abstract 
of archaeology, isn't it? I mean, the <laughs> essence of an object versus its form versus its aura. You know, where something looks yeah. old. I mean, this is the other thing. Stonehenge looks old. It looks primitive and ancient. It looks, you know, like this is the first thing that was ever made in the world. And I think it kind of that kind of helps in some way. But what would be what would be what would you change? What would you what would you distract people with if they didn't if you wanted to get them away from Stonehenge? What would you distract them with? Can we distract people? I don't, I think I think so. Stonehenge is so embedded in. I don't know if you ever can. I think prehistory, prehistory has a like I said, prehistory has a dominance in archaeology because it was kind of studied first. It was so. It, I think prehistory has its dominance, and therefore, it, Stonehenge will always be a pull. I don't think it would be quite nice to engage in different types of archaeology, digital archaeology. Um, I think that's kind of interesting. I I, I always go to medieval because I like medieval. But medieval is apparently very boring. Um, so who knew? I think I think engage. I, I honestly don't know if you can. I think Stonehenge is so embedded, and so is prehistory. I don't know if you ever could, if I'm honest. But I, I prefer. I'd quite like people to look at to realise that archaeology isn't old, just old stuff. Archaeology is everything that's been that's been changed by the human by humans it's, it's the human past now five minutes ago when i was eating my lunch is human past so that is archaeology too because i have changed something and i think kind of getting people to know that and also if people would stop just thinking archaeology is digging that would be quite nice too i think if we can escape that if archaeologists could escape that too as well that would be really nice if i don't have to go to a conference and ex and kind of have to listen to people droning on, sorry, about digging. That would be nice too. I think if we can realise that archaeology is the human past and the things that we do to it that change it and not just digging in a field, some prehistory, that would be nice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. So if people <laughs> wanted to hear more of your rants and stuff, how would they really? find it? <laughs> What, uh, what, where, what kind of online space do you inhabit? Obviously, there's archaeological Twitter, which is really yes, good. Twitter. I love archaeological Twitter. So, sorry, what's your Twitter handle? It's just my name, Kath Poucher. Kath Poucher. And, yes. um, I mean, actually, just, just to wrap it up, I mean, for me, archaeological Twitter was something I started only because I started this podcast because I had a reason to talk to people. Now, with 1.4K followers, mm -mm -mm, I'm, I'm, I'm finding it really, really kind of... <laughs> sorry, sorry, you a bit envious of my 1.4K. Sorry, I, I did check how many followers you had just just to make oh. sure I had I could take that like that was true. So if anybody wants to prove me wrong, uh, you've got about two weeks to uh, make sure that Kath gets up to past 1.4k followers on Twitter. So Kath, you better be recruiting there hard. But I really like the way Twitter allows people to interact who don't usually get a chance to interact, especially yes. across time zones. I mean, have you got any yeah. little funny little stories about interactions on Twitter? people even yeah I've um well I've met some of my best friends on Twitter my best friends have, I met on Twitter um I, I and people who I feel like I am best friends with but haven't met in person yet that's a very strange that's a very strange feeling I do recall meeting a friend on Twitter and I'd never met him before and we met at a conference 
and we immediately got on really well because we kind of already were friends and it's that weird situation of being friends with someone but having never met them is quite odd and then it, 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 I find Twitter online friends is a very new phenomenon and it's very strange and meeting friends from different time zones I don't think I would have got some of my jobs actually if it hadn't have been for my ability to network on Twitter and I wouldn't have learned so much if it hadn't been for networking on Twitter so Twitter is is a very valuable space for heritage I think definitely nice oh well um thank you very much for spending some time speaking to me um obviously you know you're a very very avid listener of all the podcasts on the archaeology podcast network right <laughs> don't worry I play this on every single guest I have they're like Oh yeah, Tristan, you got podcasts, don't you? I'm like, yeah. It's like the people at work, you know. I'm like, ah, yeah, you know, I do that podcast thing. You know, you, you listen to lots of pod- my podcasts, right? And the- no, I actually have listened to a few of them. I'm not one of those. I have actually listened to some. Of them. Oh right. <laughs> yes. Does Does it ever happen with your uh, Does it ever happen with your blog? Is it any ever happen with you know you're talking to your people at work? You're like, yeah, no, I do the blog. You know, I told you about the blog. Oh, that blog. I promise yeah, you. Yeah, no. <laughs> with me, it tends to be, oh, you're... That, that worries me when people say it with, with that, that, with that way of saying you're. Like, oh, you're... Ca-. Yeah. That, that scares me a little bit. Yeah. More than, oh, I don't read it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. I better let you get to back to work, you know, proper work. But um, thank you thank yet you. again for spending a little bit of time taking out your lunch I hope you have a nice quick lunch or something to feed you for the rest of the day (laughs) and uh, yeah if you want to catch any of the other shows on the Archaeology Podcast Network please uh, make sure to subscribe to our feed that's the All of Shows feed or visit the website www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com now we actually have t-shirts available for you to order straight off the website so please head over to archaeologypodcastnetwork.tmail that's t-e-e-mail.co.uk Thank you once again to Kat Pudger. All the notes will be in the show. And that's all of it from me and all of it from Kat. www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com